what are your favorite types of interactivity and learning modules that you've, as a learner, experienced or, or as a developer? We, we've had a couple of keywords come out already. Simulations, branching scenarios. What, what do you enjoy? I am always a fan of the kinds of interactive scenarios that provide really rich feedback. So something that's going to give feedback that's really practical and useful to the learner as opposed to, that's the right answer. Good job. <laughs> You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In this episode, we are going to explore the practical realities of collaboratively creating interactive e-learning materials. These materials, or as they are often referred to as modules, units, or packages, can range from simple and brief to extremely sophisticated, comprehensive, and connected to external data collection systems or learning management systems. In Season 2, Episode 6, Aaron provided an excellent foundational definition of multimedia instruction from Richard E. Mayer's work as presentations involving words and pictures that are intended to foster learning. Here, we are taking this concept to another level by specifically incorporating the dimension of interactivity. But why interactivity? Interestingly, we can look to the Centers for Disease Control for a concise answer to this question. By interacting with the content and making decisions about the information presented, learners become active participants, triggering recall and improving understanding and knowledge retention. This statement comes from a guide that the CDC published in 2013 titled, CDC's E-Learning Essentials, a guide for creating quality electronic learning, and which is highly relevant to those in the higher education and or healthcare sectors. They identified interactivity as one of six key instructional components and provide examples for types of learner interaction, including hyperlinks, navigation features, graphics and animations, audio and video controls, and exercises and assessments. In a nutshell, this translates to providing a means for active learning experiences online. Whether designing and developing high-quality interactive e-learning modules for the academic environment or a commercial training environment, the process generally requires the expertise of multiple people to accomplish the task. This team sport, at a minimum, usually involves a subject matter expert, or SME for short, an instructional designer, and someone skilled in technical e-learning development processes, sometimes also managed by the instructional designer, but sometimes assigned to a specialist such as an e-learning developer, instructional media producer, or others. While we could certainly take the entire episode down a rabbit hole of software options and technical features, our focus today is on how collaborators can survive and thrive throughout the interactive e-learning development process. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues, Celia Kuchwaitiwa, Aaron Kraft, Stephen Crawford, and we are very excited to have a special guest joining us today, Yvonne Price. I've had the wonderful experience of working with Yvonne in ASU's Center for Advancing Interprofessional Practice, Education, and Research team over the last few years. And yes, that's a mouthful, so we are known as CAPER for short. Yvonne's superpowers know no end. She is the Center's Senior Instructional Designer and is also our lead for marketing communications. So, Yvonne, thank you for joining the IBD crew today. Before we launch into the discussion, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to the world of instructional design and how or why you got started with interactive e-learning development? Yes. Thank you for that very flattering introduction, Jeanette. My journey to instructional design was actually unplanned. I started teaching some online courses while I was getting my master's in science and health communications. 
And after a while, I discovered that I had a knack, not only for the teaching online part, but also for manipulating the online course components, which I found that I really enjoyed. I liked working in the electronic environment, and I liked uh, enhancing my sections of the courses. (laughs) I taught courses where there were 20 or 30 master's students teaching different sections, and we had a certain amount of autonomy and freedom to enhance our own sections online. And so I got really into it and I did quite a bit with it and I liked it. I started doing more of that for other professors and other courses while I was doing my master's. And then when I started working, I just kind of fell into doing more of it because I had experience from my graduate degree. So I was working in technical things and doing a lot of marketing communications and some graphic design work. And people were asking me, well, what about instructional design? Or could you help out with this? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. I I could do that. I know how to do that. And so I did more and more of it. And then I got tapped to design and develop a course in science and health communications when I was working for the College of Public Health at the University of Arizona. And that really catapulted me on a pretty solid path towards instructional design work. So I taught for a couple of years that course that I had developed and designed, and I started working with interprofessional education and doing a lot of design and development for interprofessional education at the University of Arizona. And I now do the design and development work for the interprofessional program here at Arizona State University. So quite a few years specifically in that field of interprofessional healthcare, which is a really cool thing, and I like that. And and as far as the interactive e-learning development goes, I think that when I started down that path was when I started developing and designing my own course, because when I decided I was going to teach a course, I didn't want to teach the kind of course where students read things and then they took a quiz or they just had a discussion board. I wanted it to be really hands-on, very engaging. I wanted them to be doing real-world things and interacting with each other and with me in a way that was going to give them actual hands-on experience that they could use and apply when they went out to look for a job so that they could leave with their degree and also with some things that they could put on a resume saying, I know how to do this and I've done this. I've, I've created a digital story. I've written a press release. So I really tried to create that kind of a course. And uh, we did role playing and we did online meetings and we did all kinds of interactive things. And it was a, it was a lot of work. <laughs> Courses like that are a lot of work to teach, but it was a lot of fun and it, and it was a very highly rated course by the students. And so they got a lot out of it. That's quite the journey. And you and I have had, uh, I think, a really positive experience working on some interactive modules for CAPER over the last couple of years. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I was actually working for the University of Arizona still when I got involved with CAPER. And it was a couple of professors that I'd worked with at University of Arizona that sent my name over to ASU. And so I came on as a contractor for this project specifically that was developing e-learning modules. And there were seven modules developed in all. There was a number of goals identified early on. And one of those goals was that the e-learning modules be highly engaging and highly interactive. And so from the get-go, that was one of the things that we were looking at, how we were going to do that, how were we going to get the content from the subject matter experts and be able to translate it into things that were very interactive and engaging. And so my very first task initially was thinking about how to get that content in a way that was going to make it more easy to facilitate interactive and engaging modules. So one of the things that we started with was developing a template, an SME template is what I called it. And I did it in PowerPoint so that it would be in a format that was familiar to the subject matter experts we were working with. Mm -hmm. 
And basically, it was a template that allowed them to go in and plug content into interactive scenarios. And there was lots of different options for what kind of an interactive scenario they might like to use. But it really helped to kind of get them thinking about how to shape the content into something that is going to create an activity with a student, something that's going to create that interaction with the learner rather than just one-way knowledge delivery. And I feel like it worked well. And Jeanette, you were really involved with that as well and and, uh, shaping that and fine-tuning it and then delivering it to our subject matter experts throughout the process. Absolutely. And I think that translational piece you hit on was a really important milestone for us once once we finally identified the workflow, the templates, the pieces. It was pretty complex getting there. And we had also the additional challenge of oftentimes a distributed team where our SMEs and our designers and our student advisory group, they weren't always in the same place at the same time. So that was one extra layer of complexity. So let's pitch it out to the IBD crew. What are your experiences with developing interactive e-learning or interactive materials? Well, like Yvonne, you know, I've worked on some very large projects and, you know, it's it's interesting. We were talking about it's a lot of work and it's usually yields something very highly appreciated by the students and highly rated. It's really amazing how much work it can be and it's very daunting. And I think that's something that's worth kind of noting because a lot of times we look at, oh, I'm going to create something and captivate or articulate or storyline the various tools that are out there. And I like what you said, you started with PowerPoint something very simple and familiar, almost storyboarding what things are going to look at like. And I think that's a very important thing. We think about the development and it's expensive and it's time consuming and it's tedious, but it can be a disaster if you don't do the pre-work first. What are the goals? What are you trying to do? And how are you going to get there and do that in a low stakes prototype? So some of the work that I've done has been with developing e-learning modules within Storyline and doing that as a freelance contractor with one of the programs here at ASU. And it's actually something that I started doing at the same time that I got this job full time. It was very interesting to me because it was still the role of an instructional designer was still new to me. And so I was labeled an instructional designer there with the program doing the freelance work, but then also an instructional designer here where we weren't necessarily building e-learning modules. So it was really interesting to see two different dynamics of having the role of an instructional designer and working collaboratively with both teams just in different ways. I probably have the least amount of experience with this particular subject. I remember in my graduate program where I was learning about instructional design, uh, we were tasked with a group project to create a learning intervention using Flash. So, and that was very interactive. It was about how to homebrew beer. (laughs) (laughs) So we had our subject matter expert, which wasn't me, by the way. Uh, And then a couple of us were tasked with the, how do you say, the technical portion of of putting everything into Flash. So we had somebody working on the music and the graphics. And so it became a distributed team approach to this interactive project, but it was just for graduate school. It's on my portfolio if you want to check it out. It's really neat. Um, (laughs) (laughs) www.aaroncraft.me. Outside of that, I think the only other time that I developed an interactive product was when I was an English teacher. I was teaching online and 
for my master's thesis, I decided to take my curriculum and change it from a didactic, from the one-way delivery approach, and take everything I've learned in my program and try to create something that was interactive, where the students would talk to each other and where they would interact with the content, which is actually kind of tricky if you're teaching purely in a computer-mediated environment, or at least I found it tricky. But I went from 50 slides in 50 minutes to 10 slides in 50 minutes because the students would have to get into groups on the microphone. It was a synchronous class. And they would have to interact with one slide at a time, which ended up taking time. But you could tell they were diving further into the content and then working together. And I used that and the results of that as my master's thesis. So those are probably my two biggest examples. Interesting. We'll have to check out that uh, home brewing uh, <clears throat> learning later. Aaroncraft.me. <laughs> Um, so several years ago, I was involved in a project to develop some what I will call HR-centric training modules, and uh, they were based in Captivate. That was the tool that was available to us at the time. And the interactivity mostly came in the form of simulated like data entry screens. So from the user's perspective, they were typing in real data in a real program, but it was really just a simulation within Captivate. And then they could they could get feedback as to whether or not they were using the correct fields and the correct types of data. And the thing that struck me and that stuck with me is the yeah the time investment you produce something that really may take your users five minutes to complete, and you've sunk like two hundred hours. It's it's intense. Having said that, what are your favorite types of interactivity and learning modules that you've as a learner experienced or, or as a developer? We we've had a couple of keywords come out already: simulations branching scenarios? What what do you enjoy? Well, for me, I'll answer that question. For me, I am always a fan of the kinds of interactive scenarios that provide really rich feedback. So, something that's going to give feedback that's really practical and useful to the learner as opposed to, that's the right answer. Good job. <laughs> you know, so so an interaction that's really giving some feedback and and scenarios, I think, do that well because they can provide a, well, if you cho choose this, then this might result and you could have da-da-da-da-da. Or if you go this direction, this may have happened. And so they can learn by different possible avenues and different possible choices and what might happen if choice A was made or choice B was made or choice C was made. And in healthcare, I think that that's particularly useful because if you're thinking about working with patients and if a patient comes into the office and they're feeling very ill and they have perhaps some high-risk issues such as coming from a particular socioeconomic background or they have high risk because of they, they have past heart disease. And then you've got, you know, different choices about how you might treat that patient and how you might assess what to do while taking into consideration the different risks that are part of that patient's history. So, you know, it can get very complex when you start thinking about those types of scenarios with patients and medical teams. I love how that takes it to the land of authenticity, though. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, like that, I'm also a huge fan of branching case studies. And so the idea that a novice may look at a problem 
And it's a 50-50 answer to them whether to do choice A or choice B, but to the more experienced person, they can see some subtle differences and therefore they know which one is a better choice. Now, notice I didn't say it was the right choice because sometimes, you know, there is no right choice. You just need to make one. And sometimes to get back to the better path, you may have to pay an, a higher price. You know, different choices aren't available to you now because of previous decisions. So I love, you know, creating a flow chart and I love just creating all those branches going, how can you get to a satisfactory solution, a higher satisfaction solution? And then what solutions are just completely wrong and are a bad path to follow, but someone could follow by accident. And that provides opportunities for remediation when you have a tool like Smart Sparrow and some of these others that will monitor the student's progress. And, and, and then you can create interventions going, okay, this is what you chose. Here's how you can kind of get back to a better path. I got to say, as a youth, I love those uh, choose your own scenario books. I'm thinking back to like <laughs> sixth grade. I would flip forward to see if like the page I wanted to jump to had the conclusion I wanted. Right? <laughs> and if it didn't, then I'd choose the other option. And you can't really do that in a virtual environment unless it allows you to jump forward and back. But I think what's fun with the more real world adult scenarios is seeing the actual consequence of your actions. You can't go back. You're stuck with what you chose. Well, maybe that's why I like those because I grew up on choose your own adventure books. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to agree with Yvonne in saying that I enjoy very rich interactivity with rich feedback as well. I have worked with some contract work where it does have that really elaborate feedback versus the ones that just have you play a quick game and you get that good job. Here's a trophy. I don't feel that the learner is getting as much out of that quick, you know, you're done versus here's more information on what you just did and here's where you could go further. And I know some faculty like what are often called page turners, where it's just one linear path all the way through the interaction. Mm -hmm. But what you end up with, you know, check your knowledge quizzes, you know, along the way. And I think we see that often in, in professional development modules. It's it's a good way to get used to a tool and, and, and start thinking about how it could be used. So that's a good low threshold. But I would encourage people who are doing that not to stop there, but to continue to grow and get more complicated. Those are great examples. So with all of these like moving parts, there's there's content and, and people and techniques and procedures. Like how do you go about negotiating those roles and responsibilities within a development team? What what tips and tricks do you have to keep that as a successful venture and you know maintain your sanity? I think it's an iterative process. I, the first yeah, time that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I worked that's with the group, uh, it was actually on the homebrew uh, project. We definitely had some differences of opinions, and it was afterwards that I realized because we were all good friends, but when it came down to doing the work, we definitely butted heads, and I still remember the frustrations of that. So I haven't fully let that go. But <laughs> no, but I, maybe maybe fleshing out the roles beforehand, something like a team charter. I'm going to do this. You do this. Setting those boundaries early and clearly might be beneficial. You know, in my work, it's mostly been me solo as the designer and the developer. And if there's audio video stuff, I've done that. So I've kind of been 
you know, the one woman show <laughs> on the projects that I've worked on. And then I work with the, the SMEs and the content experts. So it's been more of a partnership rather than a large team because I'm, I'm representing the entire learning development instructional design team as one person. And, and so most of my experience then is in working with the subject matter experts and how to, I don't want to use the word manage, but how to, how to nurture that relationship so that it helps the project grow and it, it helps the project reach success. And, and I think that in my experience, making myself very available to the SME is something I always try to do. I'm available for consultations. I'm always available if they have a question during the process about how they might be able to visualize something, how something might be transformed into an activity. So I try to really be very available to them. I always do an initial consultation to talk about things and, and do kind of a walkthrough and a tour of how the process works and how things are going to look. And another thing thing I think that's really important is supporting the content and their expertise. And this was something that I found to be very interesting and really valuable, Jeanette, in the uh, resource that you have associated with this podcast. It was an article on LinkedIn, which is a, a great, great article, real quick read if people are interested in learning a little bit more. And she talked about how important it was to honor the expertise of the subject matter expert and the content, after all, is a very important element of the, the learning package. Otherwise, there's no learning package, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, in my experience, I think it's always very important to not let the design get in the way of the content. And that's an ongoing challenge. Definitely. That was something that was very interesting for me with the first project that I was working on with the e-learning modules and that I was doing the e-learning modules for the Sanford Inspire program, which is a program that does faculty development for teachers, K through 12. And being a K through 12 teacher for 10 years, although I wasn't the official SME, I did have a lot of background knowledge in that specific field. So they did leverage some of that in having me not only put those uh, modules together, but also provide feedback to them when, you know, looking over the storyboard. And I could help with that a little bit more versus other projects where I don't necessarily know the field. So for example, a real estate course that I worked with, I wasn't necessarily the person who put the e-learning modules together, but I could at least give some feedback in a little bit of the flow as I review everything. I think putting the responsibilities out there ahead of time, but then also allowing everyone to have room to offer some sort of feedback is very helpful. Yeah, I think that goes back to some of the things that we've talked about in previous podcasts related to teamness and, and, and teamwork. In the ideal world, you would have a lot of people, programmers, graphic artists, you know, audio, visual, instructional designers, etc. And they would have defined team roles, but yet be able to work together and not necessarily not be allowed to make suggestions to changes. You'd have a project manager who's driving it, you know, working with an SME. But like you said, Yvonne, often it ends up being one person doing all the heavy lifting. And so it's just them and the SME. And in some cases, the, the faculty member, they're the ones who are trying to do it themselves in a lot of cases. So, you know, it gets even tougher. I'm glad you brought up the concept of project management, Stephen, because, you know, one of the experiences we had with interprofessional modules was that we had a designated person who was coordinating and, and kind of project managing the the moving parts. But even in the beginning, I think we didn't know what we didn't know yet. And there was a developmental curve to figuring out kind of the sequencing when we were working on pieces and parts simultaneously in parallel. So having that person 
in the center to track all of that was extremely helpful. And over time, then we learned this piece will take X number of business days and we can overlap with this other piece that takes Y number of business days and spread that out in a reasonable fashion. And I think the reality is not every team, not every project will have that type of coordination available. But some of those fundamental pieces, even if you can build your own spreadsheet and have some room for change and variation, that it will help, even if you're a one-person show, keep track of everything. That kind of, I think, takes us to another place here where we've, we've talked a lot about processes, tools, and strategies. But I think one other thing to consider is how do you provide solid examples? Because there's so much out there for people to look at in terms of existing modules and materials. Like giving good benchmarks is, is really important as well. And back to Yvonne's point about orienting or starting a subject matter expert and giving a package that includes not only a template and instructions and that consultation but also some really solid exemplars to look at. Yeah. You know, I have a little bit of, (laughs) it it was a little bit of a funny thing. It it was at the very beginning of this interprofessional module project some years ago, and we were thinking about the template and how to collect the content. And the other side of it was examples, actual examples that the SMEs could look at of a module. Like here's what a finished e-learning module might look like. And there were some different websites. I did a bunch of research and I came up with a bunch of different examples. And there was one site that I pointed the director of the program to. And I I named a few different modules to take a look at that were consistent with their budget, right? This is the key. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They need to be looking at an example that's consistent with what the the resources are able to actually produce. And so she had looked at some other ones and I said, well, those are fantastic modules, but here's going to be the resources that are going to be required (laughs) and the budget that's going to be required to produce module A versus module B. So it's really important that we're showing our subject matter experts the type of finished example that's going to be consistent with what we're actually going to produce based on that budget. It's always a big thing in the budget and resources in these projects. So <laughs> there's with lots and lots of money and lots and lots of time, you can do some pretty amazing, pretty amazing instructional design modules and e-learning modules. <laughs> can I, I have a question here. So mm-hmm. I run into the issue where whenever I'm tasked with something, usually on some side gig, some side project, there's always a tight timeline and the, you know, the budget can be big or small, but you know, there's usually a set limit to how many hours they're willing to pay for and et cetera. I have this urge to make the best possible product yet that you just can't do that unless you just comp the time, right? How do you deal with that? Can you honestly reduce the quality and still feel good about what you put out? It's a good question. I I think that actually ties well to Yvonne's anecdote because we ended up thinking about this and like, what's the Cadillac version look like? But what is the like what does the Toyota Corolla version look like? And it's still hey, I drive a, a good Corolla. vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's still a quality brand new car and it smells good. It is, I mean, yeah. Come it doesn't on. smell good, but it, yeah. Well, yeah. anyway. Anymore, think, think about it using the South Park model. Okay. And, you know, follow me here for a second. That, that animated show was originally done with construction paper cutout. Yes, that's true. I mean, they could have done far better artwork in the very beginning and it would have taken far longer, but the message was more important than the medium. So they spent their time focusing on the message and the scripting and the storyline as crude as it was. But the bottom line was the animation was basic 
construction paper moving on a screen effectively. And then later they got into animation and they said, let's just keep what works for us. You know, let's keep this model so we can keep churning this out fast because the animation is not what's going to sell the show. What we say is what's going to sell the show. And I think the same thing can be said with e-learning modules. If you are a one person team, hopefully they're going to give you at least 500 hours to do one hour of content mm -hmm. because it's going to take a while and you're not going to get a fighter jet out of that. You're going to get, <laughs> if you're lucky, a skateboard. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, so let's just face it. You know, you've got to make decisions and, and, and that's part of the process. And I think that's part of the design process is go, what are we trying to do and what's important here? That's well, a good example. And over time, then you build up a portfolio of knowledge, if you will, about what with the highest level of quality you can produce within 100 hours, within 200 hours and give those examples. Right, so, but you have to eat it sometimes, right? Like mm -hmm. sometimes you, you spend way more than 100 hours to realize <laughs> what you can do in 100 hours. Yeah. Yeah, timeline creep. Well, we've naturally transitioned here into touching on some of the sort of challenges and barriers around these various projects. Um, and I just wanted to point out that the CDC guide has a statement in there to the effect that e-learning products facilitate learning by applying interactive strategies that engage learners and stimulate recall of prior knowledge. Different levels of interactivity may be used to suit content and audience needs, but all interactions work within the organization's web architecture and meet the organization's accessibility requirements such as Section 508. So there are other practical considerations that you may have to address that impact your timing and your process for quality control, all of the other elements that may be necessary just to get that material out. Was that a question or just a... <laughs> What other challenges and barriers in that venue have you experienced? Well, I'm glad you brought up the accessibility one because I think a lot of times we think of some really cool things that can be done. And it's not just an interactive activities, but we're talking about like heat maps where you click on an image as opposed to be given the multiple choice, pick A, B, C, or D. And so, you know, the A, B, C, or D is far more accessible than go look at the screen and move the pointer to the heat map and, and where you think this item is located. Another thing to consider is, again, with the AV, with the audio visuals, you need to provide descriptive audio as well as captions. And so that's an important piece to consider. There's just a lot of different things when you think about that from the accessibility standpoint. But at the same time, you know, you know, you've got to think about the scope of what you're doing. For me, the biggest thing is time. When I think of a branching thing, if you want to have a, a project that branches in 15 different directions, you may not have the time to do that. You, you may only have time to do five. And, and another thing to consider is when you're outsourcing a project, you really need to know what you want, have well-defined learning objectives and a well-defined, this is how we know when we got there assessment, because everything in the middle, once they start developing a lot of developers, you will mess up the timeline and increase costs every change you make. How about developing for mobile as well as your other system users? I mean, that's that's definitely still a consideration. Aaron used the dreaded word flash, but even so, if you're Rest publishing something, yeah, something to HTML5, there are still certain considerations to take into effect for your mobile learners. Absolutely. So for me, the biggest barrier here is also possibly the greatest benefit, and that's working with other humans. Right? <laughs> I, I'm taking a step back here, right? It's not the technology for me, but I think with the more people I work with on a project, the more I need to let go of my vision and the more I need to be receptive 
to everybody's input. And that's not always easy, at least I, I'm getting better with it, I think. You know, another thing I want to mention real fast is why create an interactive activity if one already exists that you can use? The things that you guys have developed at Caper are Creatively Commons license, so people can use that. And yes, you can't change it easily because it's all programmed in, but there are resources out there that are available on Creative Commons. Merlot is a great site. And, and this kind of goes back to the technology problem. A lot of what they did originally was in Java and things that just don't quite work today. But there's a lot of updated things there that you can use in your courses. So some of the interactivity may already exist and you don't have to develop it. Back to the land of RLOs. It's good stuff. All right, gang, any final practical tips or tricks? Be organized. When you go to develop, I think some of the things that were said earlier about using PowerPoint, I think PowerPoint is a really good friend of yours. It's a great storyboard tool. As an instructional designer, ask questions. Make sure that you're very clear on what the overall goal is, what the objectives are, what the end should look like and what they're wanting, and then having those checklists, as well as milestones set out so that you can make sure that there is frequent communication. All right. Every time I create mutually agreed upon milestones, they're a nice ideal and they sound beautiful at first. And even a few of them might work out, but eventually the, the time creep happens happens or they get pushed back. So it's a good recommendation, but you got to be ready for that to be dynamic, right? That's um, life. I think <laughs> flexibility, <laughs> flexibility might also be one of those. I would say just clear, concise learning objectives. They help serve as a foundation and a reference point for the work to be done. Everybody can come back to them. It's iterative, so they can be updated and refined as the process goes, but start off with a solid foundation of objectives that everybody can agree with or at least reference. So one other important question I think to add on to Celia's list, and also something that I think ties in heavily to accessibility, is the audience. So that's something that I always like to know about when I'm starting a project. Who is that audience? Who are we trying to reach? And what's going to be the best way to reach that group of people? Because that brings in choices about technology, delivery. Is it going to be something on HTML5? Is it going to be something that goes into an LMS? Are they millennials? Are they senior citizens? So that for me is a really big question too, is who is that audience? Absolutely. That analysis phase is so critical to the success of any learning material development project. And just to come back to that checklist for a moment, I think I would tie that checklist concept back to our sort of team contract or project prospectus. Tie accountability measures to that. It's not always about being a sheriff, but I think sometimes people just don't quite know what the downstream effect is if they they miss a milestone, they miss a timeline, helping to really articulate what happens if, you know, someone three steps, you know, further in the process doesn't get their part done, that provides some incentive to work together <laughs> and get things done on time. I would also add getting to know what the management style is for the project. I've worked with some who are managing as though everything goes through them. So you don't necessarily go directly to, let's say, a graphic designer or someone else on the team. You go through the manager and then the manager then feeds the communication over. And then other times I've worked with managers who say, OK, just go ahead and talk to the graphic designer 
designer and get what you need from them. And they don't, you know, worry so much about needing to be in the know at all times. Of course, you review it later and talk to them about it later, but they don't need to be told every piece of communication that you're having with others. So I think figuring out that style of how the communication is going to work helps as well. Good point. Really good. Anything else? I'm sorry. I can't figure out the management style until after I make a mistake or step on someone's toes. (laughs) That's the only way I've learned. Keeping it real. (laughs) And that, you guys, is Aaron. It's simple, Aaron. The management style is don't miss milestones or else. That's the one I stick to when nobody else does, but I'll miss everything else. All right. We've explored a lot of ideas for how to realistically approach the design and development of interactive learning materials. At the end of the day, it seems that a lot of this really comes down to structured and strategic processes for collaboration. Thank you for sharing your very diverse experiences and tips. I'd like to remind our audience that we've also posted some excellent resources in the show notes for this episode, and we would love to hear about your go-to techniques for thriving in the face of complex collaborative projects. Reach out to us on Twitter or by email. Thank you for joining us today to creatively consider new ways to approach the design and development of interactive learning materials with Celia, Aaron, Stephen, and of course, our very special guest, Yvonne Price. As always, we have maximum appreciation for our producer, Ricardo, for without him, our interactions would be confined to random rants at the sky. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast, or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Yay! I cannot believe this transcontinental podcast actually worked. (laughs) Well, then again, I haven't heard the results yet. (laughs) Woo, yes. It's on you now, buddy. Go team. This is a really good brownie. (laughs) (laughs) Really good. I'm sitting here trying to compliment the podcast and how we managed to pull off that we're not all in the same room. And by the way, Yvonne, we're eating brownies while oh. we're doing this. Yeah, you know, I'm going to have to like mail yeah. you a package of brownies or something one of these days. They're so soft. <laughs> They're very moist. I have a piece of chocolate oh, here waiting yeah. for you. Oh, Good job. Good job. Excellent. And you know, this is our last episode for season two. Yeah. Yay. And we're on recording hiatus for a month. We get a break. Wowzers. I think I'm going to forget how to do this.